It is remarkable to us as modern-day Bible readers to encounter these sorts of precise instructions related to what we've already identified as ancillary accoutrements in the tabernacle. We wonder why God is so involved in these apparently minor details. J. Alec Machir, again, is helpful here. He says, Any sort of casual assumption that whatever we do sincerely is as valid in heaven as it may be enjoyable on earth finds no endorsement in the Bible. Close quote. At the very least, I think the point in all this would be that what we do when we worship apparently matters a great deal to God and therefore must be carefully checked against whatever instructions may be found in Holy Scripture. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. As Christians, we often assume that if we do something sincerely, and if our motives are pure, then it must be acceptable to God in heaven. But if that's true, then why do we find such specific instructions in the Bible governing the life and worship of his people? Why doesn't God just say, be sincere in your choices and do whatever it is that you like? But he doesn't do that. He doesn't say that. And that ought to give us pause. God cares whether we worship and what or who we worship, and he also cares how we worship. That comes as something of a surprise to many of us in the contemporary North American church, but we are seeing that principle illustrated quite clearly this week in our reading from Exodus chapter 30. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Exodus chapter 30. This chapter is essentially an appendix to the instructions related to the construction of the tabernacle and its rituals. As I mentioned in chapter 25, the tabernacle complex had three zones. These are, in descending order of holiness, the holy of holies, the holy place, and the outer court. Typically, as God was describing the furniture and accoutrements associated with each zone, he began with the most important item. So in chapter 25, he began with the Ark of the Covenant, the most important item in zone one, the Holy of Holies. Then later in chapter 25, he began to describe the table and the lampstand, the most important items in zone two, the holy place. Then in chapter 27, he began to describe the bronze altar the most important item in zone three, the outer court, and so forth. Here in chapter 30, we return then to some items of lesser importance from the outer zones. There's only one item in zone one, the Ark of the Covenant. So these are ancillary items associated with the outer zones. That's what's going on in chapter 30. Now, that isn't to say that the arrangement here is without meaning, J. Alec Manchir sees meaning, particularly in the way that the lamp in the outer court described in chapter 27 and the altar of incense described here at the beginning of chapter 30 form a sort of bracket set around the discussion of the priesthood. He believes that is very much intentional. He says, we must simply let the symbolism speak to us of the outshining light and the uprising incense. On the one hand, we, each and every believer, as his priestly people, 
have the priestly duty of bringing to the church and to the world the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, 2 Corinthians 4, 4-6. And, on the other hand, of making sure that the voice of prayer is never silent in priestly intercession. In all of this, Jesus, of course, is the perfect light, John 1, 9 and John 8, 12, and the perfect intercessor, Hebrews 7, 25. And he sets us an example of our priestly priorities, closed quote. That may be so. And it certainly does square with how these symbols are used throughout the New Testament. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. You shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length, and a cubit its breadth. It shall be square, and two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top, and around its sides and its horns. And you shall make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make two golden rings for it. Under its molding, on two opposite sides of it, you shall make them, and they shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold. And you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony, where I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps... He shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it, a regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering. And you shall not pour a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. With the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. Now, just a quick reminder here that will help you keep these items straight in your mind. If an item is overlaid with gold, then that item belongs either in the most holy place or the holy place. Items in zone one and two are overlaid in gold. Items in the outer court, zone three, are overlaid in bronze. This altar is overlaid in gold. Therefore, we can visualize it standing just in front of the curtain that leads into the Holy of Holies. So if you were a priest and you entered into the tent proper, into the holy place, you would have seen this altar of incense standing just in front of the entrance to the most holy place. As a priest, you would never have passed this altar in order to go into the most holy place. That would only have been done by Moses or Aaron or whomever was the high priest in later years. As Machir said above, it seems very likely that the incense was intended to symbolize the prayers of God's people. Remember, this tabernacle was based upon some kind of heavenly blueprint. And in the book of Revelation in the New Testament, the Apostle John was given a vision of the throne room in heaven. In Revelation 5.8, the text says, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, closed quote. So 
right there, it refers to bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So I think we're on very solid ground in making this equation. Hey, Pastor Paul, I want to jump in here for a second if I can, because I love this idea, this picture of there being a bowl of prayers in heaven in front of the throne of Almighty God. I have no idea how literally I'm supposed to take that, but I like the picture. Yeah, me too. And and I think that's the beauty of pictures like this. It gives us an authorized image or an authorized illustration of this in our minds. It probably doesn't correspond exactly, but our minds probably couldn't handle an exact correspondence. But this is an authorized picture. We're being told to think of it like this. So let's do that. Yeah, and I'm, I'm doing that right mm-hmm. now. I love this picture. But I have a question here. Is this picture saying that we have to fill up the bowl before we get our response? Is, is this like that barrel at the water park? I've got to use my squirt gun to fill up and to get it to tip over on everybody down below. Is that the implied takeaway here? Like, Pray more, pray faster, get more volume in the bowl so good things come flying down from heaven. Yeah, I don't think that's quite it. I, I don't think the image is calling on us to be volume prayers, so to speak. After all, Jesus said, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. That's Matthew 6, 7. So Jesus actually pushes back against any kind of mechanical notion that if you can just reach a certain word count in your prayer, then the blessings of heaven are going to be released. So I don't think that's it. Rather, I think the symbol here is communicating that our prayers are precious to God. He stores them. He savors them. He doesn't lose or neglect or overlook any of them. They're kept in a bowl, and the fragrance of them rises up before him like incense. And then when the time is right, it is, in a very real sense, the power or the influence of those prayers that results in providential action from God being released down here on the earth. In Revelation 8, this imagery shows up again. In verses 2 to 5, it says, Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to burn with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So there, the prayers of the saints are pictured as being connected to the providential action of God in casting fire down on the earth. So yes, prayers are going up, fire's coming down. But there's nothing said there about about volume or word count, as if there was some kind of fill line that Mm -hmm. had to be achieved before God would move. Rather, the sense seems to be that God treasures our prayers and savors our prayers, and he does really and truly respond to them with providential action in such a way and at such a time as to correspond perfectly to his will and sovereign ordination. So do our prayers really matter, or is God just going to do whatever it is that he's going to do regardless? Yeah, that's a good question. And and I would say absolutely our prayers matter. Not in the sense of making God do something that he doesn't want to do, but rather I would say that God ordains the ends and God ordains the means. And he means, he wills to accomplish his 
ends through and in response to the prayers of his people down here on the earth. Remember, this is what we were made for. The universe was designed to receive the blessings of heaven through the mediation and intercession of human beings in covenant relationship with God. So this is just us fulfilling the purpose for which we were originally made. Yeah, that is awesome. I've never really thought of it that way, but it makes perfect sense. I like that. Let's jump back into the story now just before verse 11. The atonement on its horns mentioned in verse 10 is to happen once a year. This became part of the ritual associated with the Day of Atonement, which is described in greater detail in Leviticus 16. We jump back into the text at verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras, half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel, when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel, and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord, so as to make atonement for your lives. These verses describe the census and the poll tax. Now, we're not entirely sure why it was considered so dangerous to conduct a census. We know that it was. Joab was very much opposed to David's desire to conduct a census in 2 Samuel 24, and as it turned out, with good reason. The most likely explanation is that the main reason to conduct a census was to begin making preparations for war. And according to the Bible, only God could declare war, which he generally did through a recognized prophet. So when David conducted a census, it was, in essence, a usurpation of the divine right. And it was met, predictably, with divine wrath. So, taking a census was dangerous business. You better be sure that this war had been authorized by God, or you were putting yourself in position for divine chastisement. It's also interesting to note that everyone paid the same amount here, whether rich or poor, and all the money went to the care of the Tent of Meeting, which is another name for the tabernacle. There was a Tent of Meeting before the tabernacle was built, a sort of proto-tabernacle, but then once the tabernacle was built, it was also sometimes called the tent of meeting. The point is that the money from the poll tax ended up here. It was used to support the worship. The idea was that the tabernacle belonged to everyone equally, and therefore everyone needed to contribute. As I've said before, giving is one of the main ways that we express humility, dependence, and allegiance in our worship, Old Testament and New. We jump back into the text at verse 17. The Lord said to Moses, You shall also make a basin of bronze, with its stand of bronze, for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet, when they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, and 
They shall wash with water, so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet, so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring, throughout their generations. As I mentioned above, items overlaid in gold belonged in the most holy place, or the holy place, whereas items of bronze belonged in the outer court. So here, the basin of bronze was for the priests to wash up in before they entered the tent proper, the holy place, or in the case of Aaron and the subsequent high priests, the most holy place. The symbolism here is very important. While the high priest and the regular priests were only fully bathed once, initially, as part of their ordination service, they had to wash their hands on an ongoing basis if they wished to draw near unto the Lord. And the idea, of course, is that just as we are only saved once by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, nevertheless, if we want to draw near to God in prayer and service, we must wash our hands and we must purify our hearts, as it were. Hebrews 12, 14, for example, tells us to strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So, Old Testament and New, there is a connection between holiness and presence and power, a principle which we have seen before in the book of Exodus. Verse 22, The Lord said to Moses, Take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is 250, and 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hen of olive oil. And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting, and the ark of the testimony, and the table, and all its utensils, and the lampstand, and its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering, with all its utensils, and the basin, and its stand. You shall consecrate them, that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons, and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, This shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person, and you shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it, or whoever puts any of it on an outsider, shall be cut off from his people. First of all, let's just notice how involved God is in even the smallest details related to the worship of his people. This is a recipe for anointing oil. You might have thought that this detail could be delegated out to the priests or even the Levites, but no. Even the recipe for anointing oil is something that matters to the Lord. And as we see now in the next paragraph, so too does the recipe for the making of holy incense. Verse 34, the Lord said to Moses, take sweet spices, stacked and anica and galbanum, sweet spices with pure frankincense. Of each shall there be an equal part. 
and make an incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very small, and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I shall meet with you. It shall be most holy for you. And the incense that you shall make according to its composition, you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people. As I mentioned, it is remarkable to us as modern-day Bible readers to encounter these sorts of precise instructions related to what we've already identified as ancillary accoutrements in the tabernacle. We wonder why God is so involved in these apparently minor details. J. Alec Machir, again, is helpful here. He says, Any sort of casual assumption that whatever we do sincerely is as valid in heaven as it may be enjoyable on earth finds no endorsement in the Bible. Closed quote. At the very least, I think the point in all this would be that what we do when we worship apparently matters a great deal to God and therefore must be carefully checked against whatever instructions may be found in Holy Scripture. That deduction seems verified by the fact that in verses 26 to 28, the text says that not only were the priests anointed with the specially made anointing oil, but also the tent, the ark, the table, the lampstand, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering, the basin and its stand, and all associated utensils, meaning that the anointing oil was used to identify divinely approved accoutrements. The oil said, in essence, this item has been sanctioned for use in holy worship. That ought to give us pause. That ought to remind us to be thoughtful about whatever items or elements we bring into our times of corporate worship. Paul's instructions about dress and appearance and attitude in 1 Corinthians 11 seem to reflect this same sense of caution and respect. We must never forget that the Lord is holy, and we must never be casual with the means he has provided for our atonement and approach. Thanks be to God. Amen. Pastor Paul, I feel like it might be helpful for us to unpack what you were talking about there at the end just a little bit. How exactly do we apply that caution that you provided there about being careful in how we worship and approach God? Because the New Testament is not as specific or detailed in terms of how it describes our worship and gratitude as Christians as the Old Testament was for the Jewish people. And yet the principle is obviously valid. We don't want to be careless and we don't want to be haphazard in our approach. So take a minute and put some feet on this for us if you can. Yeah, you're right. The New Testament is not as specific in terms of the instructions that we receive concerning worship. But we should be attentive to what is there. The Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 7 that he wants to promote good order in their midst. He rebukes them in chapter 11 of that same letter for being sloppy in terms of how they were celebrating communion. And then in chapter 14 of the same letter, he says, all things should be done decently and in order. So I do think that our modern North American obsession with spontaneity and authenticity is maybe a little bit overdone. And I think we're likely due for a bit of a course correction in terms of order and structure and soundness in our corporate worship. 
But that doesn't necessarily imply that we have to be serious and dour and restrained in our worship, right? No, absolutely not. Uh, Worship is supposed to be joyful. Think of how many times in the New Testament we're told to rejoice. Paul says to the Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. That's Philippians 4.4. So there should be joy in the house of the Lord because God is good. Our salvation is free and our future is glorious. Praise the Lord. But I think what we're aiming at here is what the wise old pastors sometimes refer to as serious joy. A joy that comes from knowing God and remembering what he has done for us through the person and work of Christ. So there needs to be a fair amount of scripture reading. There needs to be sin confessing. There needs to be gospel hearing. And then there needs to be joyful responding to all of that. That's serious joy. And I think that's the essence of what is being commended and commanded here in the New Testament when it comes to our times of corporate worship. Mm, All right. Thanks for that. It makes a ton of sense. Well, as always, friends, if you are looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. And don't forget to tune in to Life 100.3 next Sunday morning for the next chapter in our journey through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 